And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. One thing I like about the NASB, and I think there's a couple other versions that do it as well. Anytime you see the word Yahweh, okay, the Hebrew Yahweh, which we understand is God's name that was revealed to Moses there uh, on the mountain, uh, uh, Exodus uh, 3.14. Uh, he says, I am, and, it, and it's the, it's, it's, we call it the tetragrammaton, it's, it, uh, ton, it's Y-H-W-H. We supply the vowels so that we can actually say it, and it's Yahweh, but that's his name. Anytime that Hebrew word is used, the NASB will put capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In other words, this just isn't an everyday Lord. This is, this is Yahweh. This is God the Father we're talking about, okay, Yahweh. Um, so, you know, when we see that, and we're gonna see that in our scripture today, other places you'll, say, you'll see capital L, little O, little R, little D. That's, that's another, usually another Hebrew word. In our text today, it's Adonai, Adonai, okay, which typically means almighty, but as Jesus interprets it, he sees it as the Messiah, all right? So we're, we're going, that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning. What does Jesus mean when he's talking about Lord? What does he mean? Well, well, Satan, let's begin with the fact that Satan is a master deceiver. Is he not? Satan ever deceived you? Yeah. If you're not raising your hands, you're either ignorant or lying, one or the other. Satan is a deceiver. If, you, if he can fool you into thinking that everything is right between you and God, when in reality it's not, that, hurt, that has consequences that are eternal. So it's crucial that we understand what true Christianity is and not be deceived by false religion. Now, one of the most common complaints that you hear from those that avoid church is that the church is full of hypocrites. But you know what? So is the world. But they're right. The church is full of hypocrites. Satan makes sure of that. Uh, he deceives many into thinking that they are right with God when in fact they are not. And he uses those hypocrites to keep others away from true Christianity. And so, again, we need to make sure that we understand what, what true religion is and what we should steer clear of when it comes to false religion. Now, up to this point in this week, this is his last week in Jerusalem. It's just a couple days from now he's going to be crucified. We're getting to that point in the book of Luke. He's been in the temple every day teaching, and so far he's been on the defensive in the midst of his teaching, people have been walking up and challenging him. We've seen that over the last month or so. They come up and ask him various questions, and he's dealt with them snippety-snap, and they're just amazed at his answers, right? They think they've got him, tricked him, trapped him, but it's not the case. Well, now um, he kind of flips the switch, and instead of being on defense, he, he, he takes over on the offense he asks them a question now his intent of this question was simply to show his audience that neither they nor their religious teachers uh, you know that they understood their own scriptures he's going to bring some he's going to ask a question and they're all going to go hmm that's a good question now they rightly thought that the messiah would be the physical descent of david david and jesus is 
right? He's the lion from the tribe of Judah, which is the lion, that, and he comes from the, the house of David. So, yes, he, that, that is true. But they wrongly thought that he would be just a great man, a political savior who would usher in a time of peace and prosperity. Jesus wanted them to see that the Messiah or Christ, uh, both mean the same thing, anointed one, would not only be David's son, but also David's Lord, God in human flesh. They needed a right view of Messiah so that they wouldn't be deceived by false religion. Now that false religion was embodied in the scribes and the Pharisees. Those were the religious leaders in Israel. The common people could easily be deceived into thinking that true spirituality was to be like these leaders. Outwardly, they impressed everyone with their spirituality. They, they dressed differently. They had holy garb that made them recognizable. Everyone gave them respectable greetings in public. They sat at the front of the synagogues and in the seats of honor at public banquets. And Jesus says they offered long prayers. They seemed far more spiritual than the average Joe. And yet their hearts were far from God. They were full of pride, greed, selfishness. Jesus exposes them and then warns of the greater judgment that they will receive. So with this question, Jesus directs us to true religion. True religion is to know Christ Jesus as Lord. False religion is to be religious simply to impress people. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, again, we come just asking for your assistance. Lord, uh, in, in, in book of John, you said that you would send the Holy Spirit and that he would lead us into all truth. So, Father, we ask that you do that this morning, that we understand, we would see, and we would embrace the difference between true religion, which is to know Christ Jesus as Lord, and false religion, which is all outward show for the sake of people. It has nothing to do with you. So, God, speak to our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, true religion is to know Christ as Lord. This is the first four verses there. Now, at its essence, Christianity is not a system of thought or morals, although Christians do have systems of thought and morals. Nor is true Christianity or an, organization of, an organization of people in churches, although every Christian should be involved in a church. Neither is true Christianity having some sort of spiritual experience, although it must be experiential. The essence of true Christianity is to have a personal relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. In John 17, we have recorded for us what we call the high priestly prayer. We believe the disciples may have been there and heard this. He actually prays for the disciples, then he prays for others who will come because of the disciples. But earlier in the, early in the prayer, here's what he said. It's verse three. He says, this is eternal life, speaking to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, he was the one speaking, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is is eternal life. True Christianity is knowing Christ as Savior and Lord in daily life. If Christ isn't in effect your daily life, you need to reconsider whether or not you really belong to him. So this really involves two essentials. First, knowing Christ as Lord means having the right understanding of his person. 
Uh, in asking this question, Jesus wasn't playing theological games. Uh, he was doing evangelism. He, he was going after souls. Even though he knew that these religious leaders would shortly condemn him to death, he's reaching out to them and to the greater audience. He was pressing them to consider the all-important question, and this is, is the most important question you'll ever have to answer. Who do you say that I am? Back in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And, and their answer was, well, some say Elijah, uh, some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, some say John the Baptist. And then he, then he got real pointy and he said, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter speaks up as he always does. And for once he gets it right, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living Christ that's Greek for Messiah you are the Messiah the son of the living God and Jesus goes blessed are you Simon Barjona because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven so there we have the essence Jesus is the Messiah the Christ the son of the living God well he wants us to answer that question he wants you to answer it today who do you say that Jesus Christ is. Now he quotes from Psalm 110, verse one. And when he does, he's saying this is most essential. You need to recognize that Messiah is not only David's son, his descendant, but he's also David's Lord. The Father has promised to make all of his enemies his footstool for his feet. In other words, his enemies are gonna be under his feet. You're either gonna submit to him willingly now or against your will in that day, whenever that day is, but every knee will bow. Now, if even the great King David calls Messiah Lord, then don't you think that you and I must do so as well? Psalm 110, uh, verse one, is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament scripture. So the Holy Spirit who inspired the uh, writers of the Bible, they considered that psalm to be quite significant. In verse one, we have this conversation between two members of the Godhead. Remember, God is one in essence, but three in person or three in subsistence. So the Lord, all caps, the Lord said to my Lord, that Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh speaks to David's Lord, Adonai. That's the word. Jesus interprets it as Messiah, revealing the divine plan to bring all things into subjection to the Messiah. And the paradox which Jesus puts to the crowd was, how can Messiah be both David's son and his Lord? After all, it's kind of natural that sons are subject to their father, yet David called this son Lord. The paradox cannot be solved uh, unless the Messiah is both human as David's son and divine as David's Lord in the same person. The Jewish scribes, they, scribes, they acknowledged Messiah as David's descendant, a great man. But they didn't understand that he must also be David's Lord, God in human flesh. So Psalm 110.1 is a reference to the position of Christ after the resurrection and the ascension. 
Do you remember at his trial before the Sanhedrin when they asked him if he was the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, which is how he referred to himself. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is a direct reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus did ascend into heaven and he took his rightful place at the Father's right hand far above all rule, all authority as the head of his church. Now, as proof to Israel of his exaltation, God sent the Holy Spirit to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. You remember that? On that same day, Peter preached the very first sermon of what we would call the Christian era. And, and he says that Jesus' ascension into heaven and the promised outpouring of the Spirit was proof that God had made this man, Jesus, whom they had crucified, both Lord and Christ. And yet the verse also uh, shows that the Messiah's, in, Messiah's enemies, they're not all yet sub subject to him. He didn't come the first time to, to smite the nations and to rule with an of, a rod of iron. Uh, he didn't come to tread the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's what Revelation says he'll do when he comes again. One of the main reasons uh, through the centuries and even today that the Jews do not believe in Jesus, they do not believe he is the Messiah, is because he did not fulfill all of the messianic prophecies. Ironically, they're referring to prophecies that will come true when Jesus comes the second time. But at that point, it's going to be too late for them to repent and believe. And they miss what Scripture has already told us, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. They totally forgot about the suffering or ignored it. Scripture plainly pronounces woe on those who are not subject to Jesus when he comes the second time. Revelation tells us that it will call out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, the point is to know Jesus Christ in the proper sense, you must have the right understanding of his person. Scripture plainly reveals uh, him to be the risen and exalted Lord seated on the throne of glory right there at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again soon, but not as a suffering, sis, uh, the suffering servant to die for his people. That's what it's what Isaiah 53 reveals to us. No, this time he's going to come as a conquering king to suppress all opposition. That's when we'll see that rod of iron. Now, as I noted last, noted last week, wrong theology is almost always mixed up with wrong living. These Jewish leaders were not only mixed up about the resurrection, but also about the person of Christ, just who he was. To complicate things, they really liked being Lord of their own lives. They liked the honor and the respect of other people. What they needed to do was dethrone self and enthrone Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, if, you, if you've never done so, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to read the Gospels and I want to ask yourself a few questions. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Read the Gospels, ask that. Number two, what claims does he make about himself? Look at what he says about himself. Uh, number three, 
could such a man as that merely be the son of David or must he also be his Lord? And if he is David's Lord, should he not be my Lord as well? Well, be here Knowing Christ also means having the right response to his person. So you know who he is, but you also respond appropriately. To know who Christ is, that he is both David's son, a man born of the flesh, just like you and I, but he's also uh, David's Lord, the eternal God. To know those things, that's good, but each person must respond to this truth by trusting Christ as Savior and yielding to him as Lord. Now, on this occasion, Jesus doesn't answer the question that he posed, and he doesn't even call for a response from the people. He just left his audience to ponder the implications of this question for themselves. But there is a clear implication. If Jesus is the Messiah, and Messiah is Lord over such a great man as King David, a man after God's own heart, then should not we submit to him as Lord as well? So true Christianity is not just believing intellectually that Jesus is the Messiah or or your Savior. True Christianity means believing in Jesus in the sense that you follow him day in, day out, so that in thought, word, and deed, you are being conformed, changed into his image day by day. Scripture contains some pretty sound warning that if we claim to know Christ but continue to live in sin, we are deceived. James 2 argues that faith that does not result in righteous living is not saving faith. Now, this is not to say that Christians never sin. Hmm. The Bible explicitly states that, yeah, we, we do sin. David himself, as I said, the man after God's own heart, he sinned just terribly in the incident with Bathsheba, did he not? I mean, you've got adultery, you've got murder. Well, as long as we're in these bodies... We're going to fall short of God's holy standards. You see, sin is not the normal course of life for those who truly know Christ. Believers struggle against sin. Before Christ, we don't struggle an awful lot with sin. (laughs) Uh, After Christ, yeah, we do. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18 talks about that, how now you have the Spirit of God within you who is battling against what Paul calls the sin nature or the flesh. And he says it's an actual battle so that, you, that, that goes on continually so that you cannot do the things that you know to do. So yes, sin puts us in a struggle. Believers have a growing hatred of sin, not just in others, more so in themselves. They confess their sin when God's spirit convicts them of it. They don't excuse their sin saying, hey, we're under grace, no big deal. God's got it covered. Christians seek to be pleasing to Jesus as Lord in thought, word, and deed. So the question which this first section should leave us with is, do I truly know Christ as my Savior and Lord? Now Mark's account says that the crowd enjoyed listening to him. But it's not enough to enjoy sermons or a good theological debate. This same crowd that he's talking to now in just a few, who enjoy listening to him in just a few days, what are they going to be crying? Crucify him. Crucify him. True religion means submitting personally to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, that's true religion. Let's talk just a few minutes about false religion. False religion is being religious to impress people. 
Jesus addresses the disciples, but in a way that everybody around him could hear. And he warns them of the danger of false religion, as practiced by these religious leaders. Now, as noted last week, Jesus wasn't just positive in his message or messages. He both exhorted in sound doctrine and he refuted those who contradict. Now here, he forcefully confronts the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to warn people to not be enamored in their ways. Now these two verses, they're a condensed form of the longer sermon. It's reported in Matthew 23. It's 36 verses. The bottom line is a shepherd is not a good shepherd if he doesn't strongly warn the sheep about the wolves that prey on the flock. So first thing I want you to see here, I got, I got three things about false hypocritical religion. A, false religion is, resude, uh, is rooted in the desires of the flesh. In verse 46, Jesus says that these hypocrites liked to walk around uh, in long robes. They loved respectable greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. It says they devoured widows' houses for their own gain. Well, those words, liked, loved, and devoured, they point to just unrestrained desires of the flesh, rooted in pride and self-love. Because these men were not in submission to Christ, they were living for themselves even though they covered it with a veneer of religion. Everyone not in submission to Christ is living for self, seeking to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, the problem with humanity is that we, every one of us, love ourselves more than we love God and others. Now, many Christian psychologists operate on the premise that low self-esteem is at the root of everybody's emotional problems. So their approach is to build up self-esteem in their counselees. But to encourage an already self-focused person to work on improving his self-esteem, it's kind of like pouring gasoline on a fire that's already raging. You don't need any encouragement to love yourself. We do love ourselves. Uh, Jesus says the, the starting point of coming after him is not to think better about yourself. It's actually to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow him. If we're not daily confronting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, we are loving the world and the love of the Father is not in us. Now, that's not my words. That's the Apostle John there in 1 John chapter 2. Psychology mixed with Christianity is a false religion because it, it promotes the desires of the flesh rather than confronting them. Well, second, false religion is manward in focus, not God, Godward. These scribes were trying to impress people with just how spiritual they were. The common people wore colored clothes, like, like you see all of us. We've got various colored clothes. But these scribes, they wore white linen robes lined with fringe. They stood out in a crowd because of their religious garb. They were treated with a respect bordering on veneration. It was even higher than the respect shown to the aged or to one's parents. When they walked through the marketplace, everyone was expected to rise and greet them with the proper title, rabbi or master or, or father. They loved the chief seats in the synagogues. And, and they always had a row at the front that faced the crowd. That's where they sat 
facing the crowd so everybody could see them. When the important men of Jerusalem gave a banquet, they thought it was prestigious to have a distinguished rabbi and some of his pupils there. But they were practicing the religion to impress men, not to please God who sees our heart. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy as a strong warning to others. He said that they devoured widows' houses and for appearance sake offered long prayers. Wow, when your prayers are sinful, you're in real trouble. Now there are several views of what this means. Calvin thought that they were praying for hire, promising these widows that if they'd give some money to the church, these, these, these scribes would pray for them. Well, if you promise hurting people if they'll give money to the church that you'll pray for them, that, that's a false religion. Others say that in their role as scribes, they would offer financial counsel to the widows and take a healthy profit for themselves. Uh, they persuaded the women to will them her property uh, for religious purposes, ostensibly, but then they would spend it on themselves. But then they would stand in the public places and offer these lengthy prayers so that everybody would think that they were so spiritual. The problem was they were living with a manward focus and disregarding God who sees and knows our hearts. You know, we can fool one another. We can even fool ourselves sometimes, can't we? But we can never fool God. We all face the danger of manward religion. Like these scribes, well, we can pray to impress men rather to, than talk with God. Uh, we want others to hear our prayers and say, oh man, he is just so deep. Now because we're all prone to this, we need to join King David. He also wrote Psalm 139. The first part of Psalm 139 has to do with God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, and God's omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere. And it, here's how he closes out that psalm. After describing this God, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, see, this is kind of scary. False religion is a danger to be avoided because it carries greater condemnation. J.C. Ryle has some good words on this. He says, No sin seems to be regarded by Christ as more sinful than hypocrisy. None certainly drew forth from his lips such frequent, strong, and withering condemnation during the whole course of his ministry. Now, what J.C. is referring there to is Matthew 23, which I told you this is a very, it's only two verses. Matthew 23 is 36 verses. And God, uh, Jesus scorches them. He literally scorches them. He goes on to say that Jesus was always full of mercy and compassion for the, even the, the chiefest of sinners. The woman caught in adultery. Go, sin no more. But his righteous soul was full of indignation for those who pretended to be outwardly holy but whose hearts were full of wickedness. To use religion for personal privilege or financial gain is to misuse it in the worst possible way. He uses two word, words there, the little scary that I was talking about, greater condemnation. Talking about the hypocrites. They're perfectly religious on the outside, but they're far from God. And, God's, and Jesus says they will receive a greater condemnation. That tells you 
that there will be grades of punishment, degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, uh, plenty of other passages support that as well. I just wanted to let you think about that. Jesus' words remind us that the day is coming when we will all stand before God. These hypocrites got rid of Jesus, right? And they thought that he would never confront them again. But they weren't thinking about and they did not know about eternity. The same is true for any person today who shuts Jesus out of his life. You may get rid of him for the present, but you will face him on that terrible day of judgment. I promise you it'll be far better to receive his correction now than his condemnation then. On that day, we're going to hear one of two things. Either we're going to hear the awful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Or we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. True religion is knowing Christ as Lord. False religion is being religious. Did you, the world is very good at religion. Very good at religion. Not so great at Christianity. Very good at religion. False religion is being religious outwardly to impress people. Well, bottom line is we've got to flee hypocrisy like the plague, have nothing to do with it. Walk daily under the lordship of Christ on that heart and thought level. Let's pray. Father, again, uh, we come before you just asking uh, that you would speak to our hearts the truth of these words. Uh, Jesus spoke them some 2,000 years ago uh, to that crowd, and they are just as applicable to us today as they were back then. Uh, Father, your word is everlasting. So, uh, God, pierce our hearts with it. Uh, just, just speak to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.